This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Angela Mater from GetFitBook.com explained why she thinks persistence is the key rather than passion to running a successful business. On today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that's building a business on the side and driving traffic from Tumblr. In this episode, you'll learn how and why to get deeply involved with communities before launching your business, how to deal with the lack of energy and momentum when working a day job and starting a business on the side, and what is private label dropshipping and why it might be better than traditional dropshipping. Today, I'm joined by Travis Lochner from Beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-G-H.com. Beehive is a social profit company leading the new generation of cannabis culture. It was started in 2015 and based out of Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Travis. Hello, Felix. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. So tell us a little bit more about your story and what are some of the, because I know you sell different, a few different products, so what are some of the most popular products that you sell? So we basically have established ourselves as an e-commerce market for the new generation of cannabis culture. So a lot of our primary products are accessories and bongs, water pipes, uh, devices called dab rigs in cannabis culture, a lot of accessories, basically ancillary products for the cannabis industry. Everything that doesn't touch the plant, essentially. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. I like the way you put that. So tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you get involved in this in this industry? So I am from Colorado, born and raised. So I've had the blessing and the pleasure of watching the cannabis industry grow right in front of me. And so many people are having great success and exploring the area. Um, I'm a very exploratory individual and the opportunity was was hard to resist naturally. And then the secondary level is just having a general interest in cannabis on a personal level. Um, I'm really passionate about cannabis in general as being used as a wellness product and really enhancing people's lives versus the kind of the old school um, mentality that unfortunately plagues a lot of the industry. So I'm really excited to be in here, jump in the trenches, be the first on board and be able to really set the tone for this new generation of cannabis culture that's emerging. Very cool. So when you, because like you're kind of getting at this a little bit about how there's still a stigma associated with this industry and because it's changing so quickly, especially here in the United States, were there ever concerns for you for getting into this or did you see it as an opportunity more than anything? Absolutely. Um, it was really a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. So the opportunity is there, but the downside of this opportunity is there are a lot of red tape and regulations that you have to kind of wind through. And uh, we can jump into that a little bit later, but that's definitely one of the areas that we've really focused on with our branding is shattering that old school lazy stoner stereotype. Like everybody in the industry understands this isn't actually all the people that use cannabis. So I'm sure you're aware of the kind of the classic stereotype or the Tommy Chong, like 70s show mm-hmm. style stoners of the, whoa, man, whoa, <laughs> dude, we totally forgot to order the pizza, bro. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, no, just no. That that's Yes, those people exist, but we have to realize this is only a fraction of the community. So a lot of our focus on our branding is just shattering that lazy stoner stereotype and being heavily targeted on responsible, respectable, regular users. And there's plenty of them. 
<laughs> yeah, and how did you? I guess how did you recognize this because that there were these types of users, that there was a market out there for this? Because like you're you're getting at, it, there's always been this stereotype of the again the quote unquote stoner culture, like you're talking about. How did you know that there was more beyond just you know that type of like a stereotype of a, a of a user of cannabis? So I am in the trenches here in Denver, Colorado, seeing this industry emerge. So I've really kind of got two things going for me that have developed this mentality. And the first one is really just my personal experience with cannabis, um, within my family, within my surroundings, within my upbringing. Uh, None of it really matched the lazy stoner stereotype that most people associate with. So I've always personally had kind of a disassociation with the lazy stoner stereotype. And then secondhand was when cannabis was actually legalized. And people here in Colorado were losing their mind, thinking, oh man, all the all these people are going to be out on the streets smoking weed, and oh my God, the world's going to end and everything. And it legalized, and to be honest, things really only got better since then. And I have the opportunity to really speak with a lot of these high-stakes individuals, whether it's a cannabis dispensary owner or just a regular user. It's really just regular people that are using this plant. And there's just a wide spectrum of how they're using it and why they're using it as well. And just seeing that firsthand and noticing the misalignment with kind of the general assumption we're talking about and what actually is happening in the industry, um, it, it was very obvious to connect the dots that not everybody falls into that category. Mm, makes sense. So, you know, not, not everyone is listening might be in the cannabis industry, but they might be selling a product or maybe their entire brand is around a probably maybe it's more sensitive or again, a industry that has stigma attached to it. So in that case, like what kind of I guess tips can you offer up when it comes to how to navigate around this stigma? Cause I can, I could imagine, and maybe it's not true, but I could imagine that it might be harder to market or make connections or maybe even do things like run ads, you know, because again, it's, it's a stigmatized industry. So do you, have you experienced that? And what ways have you found to that worked well to help you navigate around that? Yes. So one of the, I'll give you two areas to focus on. And the first one is the community. You need to understand the community that you're going to be a part of. And it's, and you need to consider yourself being a part of that community. Um, You definitely don't want to come into the mentality that you're selling to a community. Um, What you really want to do is get inside of this community, whether it's digital, real world, and speak with these people. Understand what they want. Understand what they need. Understand what they don't want. Understand what they don't need. And from a lot of that, it basically gives you a lot of the puzzle pieces and the structure to develop it. And the second part to that question that I would add is your language and your branding is very critical. So one of the things you might have noticed is every time I bring up this wonderful plant, I call it cannabis because that's what it is and that's how we're branding it. There is a lot of power attached to the language that you use. And when you use the language that people respect and understand, it will attract those people that use that same language. So I use the term cannabis instead of saying smoking pot or you want to smoke some weed Mm. um, and stuff like that uh, because it really resonates with our community on a higher level. And being really precise with your language and being really involved in your community will be really two great starting points to kind of tap into that. Yeah, let's start. Let's start talking about this. You know, again, this applies to anybody anywhere, regardless of industry. When you do are thinking about starting a business, thinking about creating a business around a in, in a specific industry, you're saying that get involved in the community first. So what ways have you done this or what ways do you suggest people get involved in the community to learn as much about the you know target market so that you can develop the right products and market it the right way? Yeah. So what we've done, you may have heard the concept of the watering hole. So mm-hmm. you want to find 
where your audience is hanging out and who they're hanging out with. And thankfully, cannabis is such a widespread uh, product that virtually almost anybody in any market could could technically be an, an accurate audience. But what really has been our sweet spot has tap, been tapping into social marketing on specific channels that have really good cannabis-themed engagement and cannabis communities, um, one of which is Tumblr. Uh, if you've ever been on Facebook, you would probably realize it's probably not the best place to be sharing pictures of you smoking a bong or sharing some weed or anything like that uh, that you would post on your traditional Facebook status. But on Tumblr, uh, it's so much more anonymized that people Mm. just go all out and they're a lot, they feel a lot more safe in within that community and a lot more presence and activity and engagement is kind of going on in that department. And you'll, you'll notice we don't, actively target anything or anyone on Facebook for that reason until this stigma is kind of de-escalated a little bit. And I really have to focus all of my energies as a solopreneur on the markets and channels that give us the highest return. And right now, um, our, our secret sauce is actually Tumblr. It's got a really great cannabis community, and um, they're really active and engaged and just passionate about this movement and getting things going. Yeah, definitely want to talk about your Tumblr strategy in a bit because I don't think anyone that's been on this podcast that has used Tumblr to market their business. And, and what you're saying before, it, it makes a lot of sense because the, it, because there is still the stigma attached to, to cannabis. There are people still, you know, quote unquote, in the closet that are using cannabis, you know, that are not, it's not something that you can just come out and say on to your friends or family or, you know, on Facebook. And I can imagine that that kind of reduces the shareability, I guess, or virality, um, at least um, on certain platforms like, exactly. like on Facebook. So yeah, definitely want to talk about how you got around this on Tumblr in a second. Before we get there, let's talk about the very beginning of your your business. So you knew there was a market for it. You were kind of surrounded by in the offline world just because you were in Denver, Colorado. And for anyone out there that's not from, uh, that was not, I guess not familiar, we're not, not from the United States. Like that's one of the, I guess, the first states really to, one of the first states to to legalize, um, I guess, uh, recreational use of cannabis. So you knew there was a market for it. You knew that, that, um, that there was big business going on around it. What was the first step? You knew that there, there was a market. How did you go from knowing that there was a market for it to actually starting a business? So I had a non-traditional entrance into this market. And a lot of people really just dive straight in. And I didn't have that luxury. I'm really young. I'm 25 at the time of recording this. Just turned 25 this weekend, actually. And was just getting out of college when all of this is happening. So I'm seeing all of this happen around me. And of course, you want to be a part of it. But at the same time, you have to be realistic with what's in front of you. And one of the things that I think will really resonate with your audience, Felix, is the fact that maybe we can't just quit everything we've got going on and just jump in and go and try this out Mm. and see how it goes. Um, Not all of us have the luxury of doing that. So I actually have been working full-time Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, at a regular job at a nonprofit organization. And a lot of that has given me my general stability that everybody strives for, and it gives me a lot of that passionate work. It feels like I'm doing something different. I'm doing something meaningful. And I didn't exactly have this, okay, throw everything out, let's go, here we go time to rock and roll and jump into it like like many people did. So I had a little more of a strategic approach in getting into this industry, and that is more of dipping your toes in the water. And I actually started this business, this website, this community, 100% on the side. While I'm working full-time, as we speak right now, I actually just clocked out a couple hours ago from my regular job and converted into this solopreneur mode. Mm -hmm. And what I think your audience can really grasp from that is that you don't need to be going all in on something. You can start anything at 
any time with very, very minimal resources. So my entrance into this market has been a very gradual, slow, but steady growth. And I really just created the website, created our Tumblr, and was ready to go out of the box from there. And it pretty much has been slow, organic engagement that builds the community, builds this audience, and uh, which, which eventually funnels into our, our marketing strategy and everything. So a lot of it was something I know I want to do, but because I have to be realistic with the balance that you have in your life, realize that you can start something just on the side and let it grow. See what works. See what doesn't work. And it doesn't have to be the end of your, in, the end of your world if, if mm-hmm. something goes wrong. You, you, you will still have this, whatever your fallback is traditionally. Um, and some, some people will assume that, that that will keep you sheltered or uh, keep you from taking risks. But um, it's really put me in a spot where I can be very experimental with our audience and the content I'm putting out and see what works and see what doesn't. And it doesn't have to be such a high stress environment like so many people assume it's going to be. So my, my advice for anybody out there that's thinking of doing something, if they've got an idea, they know something just inside and out, they're really passionate about, just give it a little shot on the side. Just See, see how it goes. Give it a little bit of traction and you'll, you'll find the ideas that work and you'll find the ideas that don't work. Reson- resonate with your audience the ideas that do work and take away anything that doesn't. Um, so it's really just a, a slow and steady wins the race uh, f- from this end, Felix. Definitely, I definitely want to talk about this more because I feel very strongly about this this particular topic because it's really underrepresented, right? This perspective that you have because it's not that interesting or it doesn't make the headlines when the story is, you know, 25-year-old works on the side to start a business, right? It's not that <laughs> not as interesting as a 25-year-old quits his, you know, six-figure job and dives right exactly. in and launches a million business. Not as interesting, but I think it's a much more realistic approach for a lot of people. I think I would argue that most of the people listening right now are in that situation where they are working a day job or you know consulting or doing something to pay the majority of the bills and then trying to start something on the side. And I think this is a really important point to talk about because if you do kind of subscribe to the idea of you having to quit your job and going full time is that one, it can be dangerous, right? You could be very dangerous. It could disrupt a lot of, you know, the stability that you're talking about that, that you, you kind of throw out the window. And the second thing is that it kind of forces, sometimes people feel like they have to wait until the perfect time where it's like, I can't do this yet because I haven't quit my job. So I can't focus on it full time. And it makes people wait longer than they need to, which is, I think, what you're getting at. Exactly, Felix. Yeah, no, definitely. So let's talk about the, I guess, the common objection or common, um, I guess, uh, points on the other side of the table. The one thing I think you brought up was that, oh, if you don't, if you have a plan B, you're always going to end up, I guess, deferring back to your plan B, your backup plan. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like that ever comes up for you? And I guess, what are your general thoughts when someone says something like, if you have a backup plan, you're always going to default to it? (laughs) Yes, I'm. I'm actually a little torn on that one because I do. I I've heard the exact same things you do. Um, I listen to all kinds of podcasts, self development, professional development, entrepreneurial uh, advice, and a lot of it leads to that direction of kind of the go all in without that fallback. And I'm actually torn myself, Felix, uh, as well between this exact issue because. I wonder how much I'm holding myself back technically. And at the same time, I also want to be very respectful to my community and to the audience that we are cultivating. And I think one of the, the other points that you can get into when you just go all in is your intentions can slightly change when you absolutely need a sale to have food on your plate this week or to pay rent this month, your attitude and your language and your tone is going to be much different than cultivating an organic relationship with this community. Mm -hmm. So one of the trade-offs I think I can 
I can kind of play on uh, a little devil's advocate for the other team of starting slow on the side is you can remain a lot more genuine and organic with your relationships, which in the long run, I believe are going to be a lot more valuable than a, a single sale that you're just trying to push. Um, I would be much more I would be much more inclined to cultivate a long-term relationship to increase the lifetime value of a customer than to force them down a short and narrow path that I can get a quick sale from them this week. Um, so that's kind of my input um, in that department. Right. That, that I think, yeah, I think that makes sense. What you're getting at is that when you don't desperately need to put food on the table or pay the rent because you already have something else helping you fund all of those expenses, you start thinking and making decisions for the long term rather than exactly. the sale for today, this week, this month. Exactly. So the, the, yeah. So the other, the other question is, I guess the other point is, um, do you feel like you could lose momentum? You know, because there's this, I guess, other idea where you have something that's moving along, but you're, you know, you only half your time, maybe even less than half your time, or is focused on it because you have, you know, an eight hour, eight hours of your day devoted to something else. Do you ever feel like you are losing momentum, or maybe don't have as much? Like obviously, you probably don't have as much energy. But like, how do you deal with these, I guess, shortcomings? Yeah, so I've that, that's one of the things I've definitely been uh, f- focusing on, and just from a personal development side, is avoiding the compare and despair, which will honestly kill you if you are in the entrepreneurial zone, athletic zone, uh, artistic zone. There is always, always, always going to be somebody doing it better, somebody doing it faster, somebody mm-hmm. going all in. And that's one of the things I've really been kind of caught up in this whole year is looking at our competitors and going, oh, crap, well, they're growing so much better. And oh, and theirs, theirs is looking so much better in this department and everything. And then I have to sit back and realize, okay, I'm one single person creating this community. And I'll, I'll research some of our competitors, and they have teams of 20, 30, 50 plus people. And I really have to ground myself and realize, okay, this is something you need to be doing for yourself. And I think when you shift those metrics to an external standard like that, um, it really is, isn't, isn't good for you in the long run. Uh, so, so it definitely affects me, and I feel like I obviously would love to have eight to ten more hours every day to amplify this. Um, but I, right now, the balance on the ROI would not be able to make up for it. So um, th- that's that's kind of my point f- um, f- for that question, Felix. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. You know, it's funny. I've also spoken to some other entrepreneurs that have that folk that basically don't have a day job and are only solely focused on on their business. And some of them have told me that they will uh, artificially restrict their time, not because they don't have the time, but because if they have eight hours, twelve hours, you know, what ten hours a day to work on their business, they tend to spend time distracting themselves or focusing on the wrong things. And sometimes these restrictions not only force you to, definitely will force you to get creative sometimes, it also forces you to think about what actually desperately needs to be done and not spend your time on things that aren't actually core to the business. So, you know, that's kind of like, I guess, a positive to the, to the lack of time. It just forces you to be really, uh, I guess, economical with your time and economical with your energy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, so this kind of leads into my next question, which is that if you, because you have a day job, because you have, you're getting paid, by, through a paycheck, you, you you know obviously have less time uh, throughout your day because you are you know spending eight hours or so at, at work, but you do have more cash and stability than someone that word was just to quit and start a business from scratch. Do you how have you used this? I guess to your advantage, where you are you know time poor but cash slash stability rich. So I have actually that that comment that you were just making previously leads exactly into this. I really think that the entrepreneur that's doing something on the side for two hours a night can complete that same amount of work in two hours, whereas that same amount of work for somebody that has their whole day, it could take them four hours, five hours. 
And it, with that point that you're making about uh, distractions and filling up time, I, I really think that if you focus your time and your energy into specific areas, it will amplify your results. And what you need to be mindful of is looking for that 80-20 all of the time. So look for the 20% of your efforts that are bringing in the 80% of your results. And if you can find what works and what you need to be focusing on, I am fairly confident that a really intelligent and smart individual can accomplish the, the same amount of work in less time when it, when it really comes down to it. And, and I noticed this firsthand when I, before I was living in Denver, I was actually commuting to Denver. And I had just a brutal commute, two hours in the morning, two hours wow. back, and I was just the podcast master, <laughs> like every every single day, in and out. And what I realized is I would get home, and from about 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock was my beehive power hour zone. And I would know from the first minute to the last minute, from 8 to 10, I am in beast mode, getting that done I know exactly what I'm going to be doing. I've been thinking about it on the drive home. I know th- what's going to be coming up. And I feel like if I were in the opposite scenario where I just woke up that morning and was like, oh, I probably need to get this done and maybe I could jump into that as well. Um, I, I, know, I just notice it on the weekends because that's kind of the mode I start to get into mm-hmm. when you have all this extra time and I want to commit it to the company and building the brand as well. So that's that's one of the things I've really noticed is the concept of Parkinson's law taking taking into place and what that statement really is is a task will fill the amount of time that you give it. So right. a lot of the times you'll notice um, journalists on a deadline, you can push the deadline up 3 days it, the project will get done within that amount of time. You could give them an extra week. It's likely they'll get the exact same project done in about a week. Um, so I'm really a confident believer in the concept of leveraging Parkinson's law to your advantage. Mm, yeah, I like that. So you know, speaking of, of this and speaking of what you're saying about 80-20, uh, how do you locate or how do you identify those activities, those tasks uh, that are going to you know take to, that will t- deliver you know eighty percent of the value, eighty percent of value for your business? Always be listening. Always be listening to your customer. Read. Anything and everything you can on your industry, read what other people are doing. That's where a lot of uh, our strategies come in, is doing competitor research. See what's working for other people, what they're missing out on. Um, so I am really confident in my ability to look at tons and tons of details and information and all kinds of market research and boil that down to something strategic, something meaningful, find the patterns, find where this actual, where the results are coming from. And a lot of the time you will find it's coming from one or two or three different areas that that you're focusing on. And for us, it has definitely been in these, the social marketing and email marketing kind of hybrid area. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So I think the last, I mean, last question on this is, you know, you're working on this on the side, you have a full-time job. I'm assuming at some point you are going to want to focus on Beehive full-time. So when will you know it's time to to quit the day job and focus exclusively on your, your side business? I have a number and that is basically a, a number referring to, to my salary. Um, I want to be able to double my current salary with Beehive.com. And when I reach that point, I think I can confidently jump and go all in. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's just a personal uh, strategic decision to shoot for a number. Um, I've had a coach or a mentor that's recommended setting a single date. Look, Look on your calendar, whether it's two years from now, three years from now. Find when you want to be 
out of this or you want to be starting this, whichever, whichever uh, angle you want to come from. And you could do the opposite and start a countdown timer. Um, so so there's two, that, that would be an alternative way. But for me, I have a revenue number um, for me to take home. And once I hit that number is where I would be safe jumping in and going all in. That, that's, that's what works for me. And uh, uh, maybe a time-based uh, goal will work better for other individuals. But mm-hmm. that, that, that's what my game plan is over here on this end. That that makes sense. You know, for someone that that maybe doesn't have a business yet or is still working a full time job, they might be thinking, uh, you know, I want to quit and focus full time on my business that I'm going to start. If I can just match my salary, why do you say double your salary? <laughs> uh, because I am well aware of my lifestyle design that I'm creating, and I'm really just kind of reverse engineering it. So instead of just living the exact life I'm doing now, um, I'm essentially working backwards from the lifestyle I want to be living. Mm. Yeah, then I guess the other other thing too that to think about is that when you do work, uh, I, I, I can only speak for people that I guess are in the United States, is that just because you're matching your salary doesn't mean that all the benefits, health insurance, taxes, all of the other stuff that is typically sometimes covered by your employer is exactly. not going to be covered anymore. Yeah, and, there, and there's a lot of secondary value in real jobs or what what we consider real careers and yeah, maybe like I have really great coworkers and a great boss, and we are, do great work at a nonprofit. It's it's not like many stories where a, a lot of these other people you'll hear a lot of the classic stories of these people that are like, "Oh, I wanted to walk into my boss's office and just walk in there with a shotgun," and like, <laughs> and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, geez, and like I I like the people I work with. I enjoy yeah. the work I'm doing. Um, there's really not a need to kind of stir up the hornet's nest if, if it's not necessary. Right, makes sense. Cool. So let's now, let's now talk about the business that you've set up. So, you know, we know the products that you're selling. How does it all work? How do you, how do you source them? Like, what's your I guess supply chain? What does it look like? Excellent. So yeah, this is actually something I'm really excited to talk about today, Felix. We operate entirely. And and I've realized uh, this might be confusing. I <laughs> I use the term "we" for pretty much everything I do in in Beehive. I use the royal "we" as a collaborative mm-hmm. "we," uh, just because it is such a community. There are so many passionate people that just help me all the time. Uh, it really feels like a "we." So just for clarification, this is a solo project at the moment. I have no employees. Um, but I use the term we uh, very often just because it is such a strong community. We have so many people on board that are all in, whether whether they're employees or not. Um, but one of the things I'm really excited to share is our entire model is based off of a private partner drop shipping setup. And what that basically means is I don't have to touch any inventory ever. And that makes me very happy. Um, I don't have to deal with warehousing, packing, shipping, um, all of the administrative stuff that you would traditionally envision in an e-commerce store. I actually don't have to do any of that. And that gives me maximum energy and effort to focus on the front end and cultivating the brand building the audience and growing these relationships with our consumers. So a private partner dropshipping model is a really awesome concept that I kind of stumbled into this last year and it has been really helpful for me to discover. And it's pretty much the exact model of our entire company. So dropshipping, I'm sure most people are aware anyways, but it's when a, another individual or company sends a product to a customer on your behalf. And what I've done, there's drop shipping already exists. Like that's already been a, a thing and there's sourcers for it online. You can sign up for it. And the problem I've noticed with a lot of existing just sign up and go drop shipping is the competitive nature of those type of industries and those products mm-hmm. are very, very difficult to compete with. Um, when there's 10, 15, 20, 30 other people that can go to that website and click sign up, I want to drop ship, 
they can have their website up and running in a day, two days, three days. And it's, it's really inefficient and it brings the competition to a ridiculous level. So I've actually taken the drop shipping model and reached out to private product partners. So instead of going to a single warehouser or drop shipper that has all these different types of products, I actually cultivate personal relationships with the actual products that are going to be sent out. So just for an example that we can kind of follow along with here is say I wanted to start selling grinders, a very common cannabis accessory, and I want the best grinder that's out there. I go and start researching different companies, who, which ones are the best, which ones have good reviews, which ones have bad reviews, and I pick a single brand, a single product. In this case, I selected Phoenician Engineering from Arizona. They're a really phenomenal company. They focus on luxury, high-end, premium, medical-grade grinders. So they are what I call a product partner. I reach out to them and create a positive relationship and I eventually sell their products on beehigh.com and each time that we collect an order from our audience the at retail price I go ahead and purchase that product for wholesale price and it ships directly to the consumer so I'm collecting the margin from the wholesale to resale and they are fulfilling orders like it's business as usual. And it's really an excellent, excellent concept. It obviously has its trade-offs, but the primary f- fact that I don't host any inventory, any warehousing, any shipping or fulfillment gives me the ability to cultivate on our content marketing, our social marketing, our email marketing, and focus on everything on the front end. And what I've really noticed is in this green rush of the industry finally emerging is people with great, great, great products, awesome stuff coming out, have no, nothing to do with it, no audience to sell it to, no, they, they don't have the traction for it. And I come in and fill that void. I basically do the exact opposite. I'm cultivating this community of very like-minded individuals and collecting our audience. And I offer, I'll, I'll reach out and that's my value offer is I have a hundred thousand people that I can get your product in front of. And that value that I can bring to the table is something that's necessary to a lot of people. So if you know a specific product or a specific brand or company that's just killing it and you you're aware of that but they have trouble tapping into the audience or tapping into the market you can be the segue you can be the you can fill that void and that's really where a lot of our business model has thrived is on this private partner drop shipping model which is a one-on-one basis Um, with each and every product partner, but it's actually a phenomenal setup once you get it running and you don't have to focus on uh, inventory and all of the shenanigans that comes along with all of that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So let's kind of, let me kind of break this down a little bit. So you, you know, obviously want to get, I guess, go as a dropshipping model because it gives you a lot more, frees up a lot of your time. So you, because you don't have that much time to begin with, but then, so now you can also focus more on the, essentially the marketing and the community building aspect of it. But you didn't want to just go and find any other kind of public dropshipper because there's going to be so much competition. They're going to be selling to so many different retailers that it just doesn't make sense for you to get, get into because again, there's so much competition and it's all it becomes a commodity at that point. So you find these uh, manufacturers, these companies that are already creating great products and then you're building a relationship with them and then with the goal eventually of working out a deal with them so that you could buy from them wholesale or at least not buy from wholesale but buy from them at wholesale price whenever somebody buys from your site and then they fulfill the order and ship it directly to your customer. Is that right? Spot on. That is exactly it, Felix. 
Awesome. So let's talk about this a little more. So this is definitely a model that I personally have never heard of before, but it makes a lot of sense when you talk about it. So for anyone out there that wants to do something like this, let's say they find a product, find a company, and they feel like they can fill that void that you're talking about and be the marketing, the sales, the community building arm of that company. How do you begin this conversation with those partners? Like, What are you saying to them to even get them interested in you in the first place? So the... The most critical element of this entire process is the audience and the community that you own. So you need to have something of value to offer to these product partners. That's, that's what I call them kind of in the model is um, a product partner because that's exactly what they are. So what you really want to be doing is offering as much value as you can to them to, to even have them be interested. Um, you, all of your leverage comes on that front end of the market. So you need to be able to show or tell them how much you would be able to affect this community, your audience, your anything that you own and you have an influence over. That has value to other individuals. So I would really focus on cultivating a highly targeted community. And that's going to be where a lot of your leverage comes in. So I'll, I'll, I'll jump on a call or uh, go through the old school email, emailing back and forth, um, but really come to them with an offer of, hey, I have 100,000 responsible, respectable, regular cannabis users in my community. Your product fits the exact type of products that we're trying to put in front of this audience and really coming at it from this angle of giving them value and producing results and a lot because a lot of the time you're going to be competing with massive massive they might be fulfilling orders for a thousand products at a time so this might just get blown off you have to be able to understand and demonstrate the value that you can bring to the table Mm-hmm. So in your case, you had built this audience of 100,000 people and definitely want to talk in a second about how you did this, but you built this up first before you ever approached any of these uh, partners that you that you found? Slowly. So I was able to have kind of our basic, basic first partner right, at, right out the gates just because it, it actually worked perfectly like that. Um, they, they weren't too concerned and they, they provided the products that we needed. Um, and it gave me just a little bit of a structure to start with. Um, but when you really start expanding and getting into a little bit of the higher end products, um, you definitely are going to need, yeah, the actual audience and a targeted audience is where the value comes in. Um, mm-hmm. We are very clear that we are shooting for a little bit above the traditional market and shooting for the affordable luxury category. We're not competing on price. So a lot of the things that I consider when looking for partners is the value and the perception of their product and how well that's going to match the audience that I'm serving. So in in the case of Phoenician, they have luxury premium grinders. This guy, he's obsessed with engineering. He knows like, oh, if you move this tooth to this side, then it won't get stuck on this. And all like a whole nother level of detail that I didn't even know existed. But it gives the user a premium experience. So it made it very clear that we had a product audience match. Whereas if I went and saw somebody with the exact same thing and they had some cheap aluminum alloy grinder that was manufactured 10,000 at a time and they sell 3,000 at a time to wholesale distributors throughout the country, it's very unlikely that we would have a product market match there. So Mm. being really focused and really considerate of the audience that you have and the audience you're serving and the product that you, you are reaching out to attempt to connect with that audience. Having that match is very critical. And I've been very concise and considerate about the selection of our products, which has been 
really part of our success model. Instead of giving the whole warehouse style of websites, I'm sure you've been in like a website where you literally just feel like you're in a warehouse and you're just clicking through pages and pages and pages and pages and categories. And we offer the polar opposite of that. If you would imagine a traditional warehouse Walmart style store, we are the polar opposite of that. We would be like a men's designer boutique around the corner. And I'm very concise about the product selections that I put in front of our audience instead of just overwhelming everybody with anything and everything. So that's been a, another uh, little detail of creating really positive relationships with, with these individuals because of our marketing and our branding. A lot, a lot more product partners that fit that category are all about it. Makes sense. Cool. So let's talk about this audience that you built then. So 100,000 people, heard you say it a couple of times. Is that just all on one platform? Like how is that spread out amongst all, I guess, your profiles? The primary metric um, I'm trying to uh, get, get away from using, but I use it right now just for tracking general metrics, is cumulative social reach. And that's pretty much our reach across all of our networks. And that actually has been trimmed down significantly after our most recent Instagram shutdown got chopped down at 50, 55K, um, which was kind of heartbreaking. Wow. <laughs> but uh, still still recovering from the sting on that one. Uh, but what that basically is, is across all of our networks, we have access to about 100,000 followers. And a, a large majority is Tumblr, a, another a uh, chunk of that is from Massroots, which is a mobile app targeted only for can- cannabis consumers. So that was definitely, again, we mentioned that watering pool earlier. You want to be at the well, <laughs> exactly where your audience is, and it was, it was dumb not to be there. So Massroots was another uh, very excellent area for us to kind of cultivate a little more traction. And then the classic uh, Tumblr... Twitter, Pinterest is, is, is the other ones. So I don't want to get stuck on this point for too long, but you said 50,000 followers on Instagram. That profile got shut down. Like, man, that's, that's, that's definitely sounds devastating. Like, what, what happened? Um, so as, as you kind of mentioned uh, earlier, what, what are kind of the trade-offs of being cannabis-related and cannabis company? One of the things that we've done as a strategic decision is be very clear with our language and the terms that we use. So a lot of the times, I'm sure you've been into like maybe a head shop or heard the people that use the phrase, this is for tobacco use only. And you're like, (laughs) okay, okay, sure. Um, Nobody knows, everybody knows like that's not actually for tobacco use only. Um, So a lot of the other companies get they just roll with that because um, that's what you're supposed to do and everybody just thinks that's how it's supposed to go. And we've done the exact opposite. Again, uh, mentioning being really precise with your language. We are very open and transparent about using cannabis terms, cannabis language, and saying, yes, this bong is for cannabis. This is not going to be for tobacco use only. And that was like against Instagram's like policies yeah. or something? Um, so one of the things, yes, exactly. So we basically, if you are in the category of for, for tobacco use only, that means you are safe, technically. And we are actually very clear about this is for cannabis. This is a cannabis product. This, this is a cannabis accessory. And that violates a lot, a lot, a lot of terms for anything on the national level. So the Instagram was actually just a small dose of the, I, I call it cannabis bigotry <laughs> in, in the industry. And it's, it's really a professional industrial level of cannabis bigotry. Um, mm. And it's anything affecting a national retailer or a national company will almost 100% of the time cut out anything cannabis-related. So our PayPal account has been shut down and our funds frozen multiple times. Um, The Instagram shutdown, still recovering from that one. Just this morning, actually, um, recovering from 
our payment gateway just got shut down as well. Um, that one wasn't even our, our fault. We had a previous high-risk retailer or a high-risk underwriter that was acquired by a different company. That new company came in and reviewed the policies and everything and cut anything and everything cannabis-related or cannabis accessory-related. So literally, as we speak, um, I just opened my email this morning to see that our, our, our payment gateway has been shut down. So I've, I've got a stack of papers to sign up for new payment gateways, get all of that figured out later. Um, it's really a frustrating point, but it's also a really a moral stand um, from my perspective as well that I'm not going to play the for tobacco use only games. Um, I'm in this, again, for the long run. I'm in this for the long haul. And we're open about being heavy, heavy cannabis supporters. And it has some trade-offs. And I'm <laughs> quickly realizing what those trade-offs are, one at a time. Um, but as, as you've probably noticed in every entrepreneurial story, every theme, it's about navigate rerouting your navigation to get to where you need to. And I know where I need to get and it's going to be a leading cannabis brand, and you're not going to get their plastering tobacco, for tobacco use only on, on all your products. So it has its trade-offs, but uh, I, I think we're going to stick with uh, our moral stand of remaining very transparent that our products are for cannabis. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Cool. So let's talk about Tumblr then. So what? So you, you, you're mentioning that you know Mass Roots is one one platform, you know, Instagram at, at a certain point, and I guess you guys are recovering from that. But Tumblr is also a big one for you guys. What? How have you? What's? I guess what is the strategy on there? How have you used Tumblr to 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 I guess cultivate a following? So this was again another little sweet spot that I was able to find in the realm of social marketing and content marketing. As I mentioned earlier, I'm always, always looking for that 80-20. And Tumblr gives you an opportunity to create a platform. It's basically a micro blog. And unlike most other platforms, you have to post your own content, post your own image. Tumblr, you can create a completely curated blog of other people's existing content. And let me be clear for a second, this is an image that somebody else has posted or uploaded and you reblog it on your page. And it basically creates a curated content blog. And that is not stealing images, downloading them, and uploading them as your own. That is a completely different category. Credit. That's a big no-no. Yeah. So this is where it's, yeah, it's, it's originally sourced and you do what is called a reblog on Tumblr. It's basically the same concept of a share um, on every other network. So instead of creating original content when I was first starting, I was able to build a platform curating really, really great content of smoking pictures and great glass, kind of really that heavily visual communication with, with the audience. And with that, now that we do have an audience to leverage and cultivate, I've been sprinkling in um, a lot of micrographic content marketing. Um, we can jump into uh, content and email marketing a little bit after this. It's kind of a, a little trifecta that they all feed into one another. But uh, really focusing on visual content and creating an environment and a community that people want to be a part of. And that's what I have found in Tumblr. Cool. So, how do you find the content to to reblog? Like, what are you or yeah to to get to reblog? What are you searching for? Or like, what's the best way? So, if someone wants to start a new Tumblr profile to build a community, what yeah. are the first steps they should take to find the best content to curate? Well, yeah. Uh, well, I'll give the forewarning. It is definitely a slow and steady growth. So, if this is something you're going to want to jump into. Um, be, be weary that this isn't like a, a pay-per-click campaign that you're just going to amplify. It's really a, a long game uh, strategy. And it feels really empty and slow at the beginning, but once it picks up, it starts taking off. So one of the areas that uh, I really started off with was 
just general hashtags. As as with every other social channel, you can go and kind of scour and explore all the existing hashtags. So anything cannabis related, I was going ahead and jumping in there as as my starting point. And then once you get into this community, you start kind of seeing who the regular influences are, whose stuff gets reblogged the most, what type of content gets shared all the time, what type of stuff just completely flops. And from there, you can start targeting specific influencers to connect with. So once you kind of break out of the surface level um, hashtag environment, you can start jumping into seeing, okay, well, who are the people that are kind of dominating these hashtags? Who are the people that are really resonating? And these people have their own little mini audiences. Uh, so really tapping into an influencer marketing model um, with with tons of, of smaller individuals. So if, if you would imagine uh, traditional influencer marketing with authors and uh, really big, big shots um, in like traditional mar- marketing, this is really the same concept, but boiled down to more of a micro level. So connecting with these micro influencers, reblogging a lot of their content, and in turn, it kind of starts creating this self-sustaining cycle um, of, of value once you start creating these audiences. And so once you've built this uh, community, once you build a bunch of uh, followers on Tumblr, how do you drive them to your store? Actually, I have a a couple different things that we do. One of my areas of focus is actually not driving social traffic directly to our store. I actually attempt to uh, drive a lot of our traffic to our email list, which is another we can jump into Content marketing, social marketing, and email marketing, to me, are a holy little trifecta, and they're all interconnected. So what I basically do is create really engaging visual content to share on the platform. Um, A quick example, I'll kind of give you an example of how how it would work out. And I'll create a micrographic that compares the death statistics of alcohol versus the death statistics of cannabis. And I'll have an entire article ready, sitting on the site, um, nothing salesy, it's just educational, informative, community content. And that's where I'll drive a lot of our traffic from social areas. And all the time, I'm always, always, always trying to feed people into your mailing list. That's what you need to be doing if you want to own an audience. It needs to be on your email list or regularly coming back to your site. But most of the time, you want to be driving your traffic to an email list of some sort. And that's really a lot of the focus that we do is I'm all about the soft sale. Um, I'm sure I I would probably make some like marketing funnel experts cringe, um, but I'm all about cultivating a long-term relationship over a short-term sale. So we actually drive a lot of our traffic to the website for sharing content and sharing articles and educational pieces um, instead of jumping directly to the sale. Um, but we definitely do have a, I sprinkle in probably maybe about five or 10% of our posts that just link directly to products. And th- mm-hmm. th- those do tend to do uh, pretty well as well. Okay, so you're creating some original content that is, uh, I guess, related to your brand or related to your industry, and then are the people like clicking on a link to go to some landing page somewhere for them to sign for your email list? Like, how does the, how do they actually get from Tumblr to your email list? So one of the things that we really focus on funneling traffic to our mailing list is through our content signup. We have a bunch of it's basically a legalization campaign called hashtag Mission 420. And a lot of that content is very uh, viral focused on stirring up opinions, uh, getting people really passionate, getting them involved uh, with cannabis legalization and kind of exposing the details of cannabis versus other things and getting people as passionate as possible before they get to kind of the end of that article or um, the, the technical details would be pop email subscriber pop-ups. So you, you have some content that you've created on your site and then you're sharing that on Tumblr and then they click over to it, then there's a pop-up uh, basically from the sign-up for your newsletter. 
It's so yeah. Every every article is going to be slightly different. I'm trying to really custom tailor every offer. Um, but you need to either there's there's two keys that you need somebody to sign up for your email list. They need to either be passionately in love with what you're doing or sharing or writing, or you need to have something really cool or really awesome on the other end of that subscriber list. So I've taken two different strategies for that. One is kind of a traditional giveaway platform where we we just straight up give us your email address, your enter to the giveaway, and you, you can win anything you want from the site for free. Uh, stuff like that, very simple model. And the other model is a little more complex, a little deeper, and that's where it taps into kind of the heartstrings and the emotions of our audience. And that's where more of our campaign comes in, like the Mission 420 campaign, um, our cannabis education articles revealing all of the different benefits of CBD oils and cancer treatments and just really a wide spectrum of passionate content that gets people going. And a lot of it is either, yeah, a, a email subscriber pop-up box or even just a simple link um, at the bottom of every article. It's keeping it simple and making sure that when somebody jumps on your page, there's really only one thing to do. And you want to be funneling everybody towards a single call to action. Mm. Uh, a lot of times you'll see so much content that just sends people, follow us on this and share it over there. And, oh, don't forget to sign up on our thing at the bottom of the footer. You can si sign up for email newsletter too. And don't forget to check this on your way out. And then people just leave and close the page. So yeah. any content that you're producing and you're driving social traffic to, I would recommend having one single call to action for that page and just make it very clear from top to bottom what that call to action is and ev eventually it pays off. Yeah, no, totally agree that uh, you want to keep it simple and then also give them a good reason to sign up and not just, uh, hey, sign up for our newsletter. So I just don't, I don't want to be like too... Uh, too, too, I guess, dense about this myself, but because uh, I, don't, I, don't I don't have much experience with Tumblr. So, what are you are you posting the uh, link to the content on Tumblr? Like, what are you exactly are you posting to get them yeah. to your site? So, thankfully, one of the the cool things about uh, Tumblr is there's a wide variety of content posting types. Whereas Twitter, you just kind of have your 140 characters, you're mm -hmm. good, you go upload something if you want, and then it's done. Tumblr has a really wide variety of post types. They have photo sets. They have single photos, um, audio, uh, all, all kinds of different strategies. But in general, the most successful strategy is a single micrographic image. And it's basically a, a mini infographic that can be absorbed in 5, 10, 15 seconds. Don't overdo it. And... That's where a lot of our traffic comes from, is I'll post a single micrographic that's part of a larger article and cre just create a link to that article within the post. So the, the micrographic will be explaining 90% of uh, users that o overdosed on prescription painkillers could have potentially been saved from cannabis. A little quick snippet of information, a little quick fact, it's heavy on visuals, and then in the text under that image, it's just a quick link to the actual article or anything that you want to create. If you could uh, want to actually create a call to action directly from within Tumblr, you can link up to it as well. It gives you a lot of flexibility in controlling hyperlinks, bolding this and whatnot, whereas a lot of other platforms, you're really just restricted to what they give you. Um, so that is one of the areas where I can create custom links, and that's also one of the areas I've been experimenting, too, to see what types of links are working. Uh, is it better to send people directly to the mailing list, or is it better to send them to content first and then the mailing list? And just always, always testing, always optimizing. But thankfully, mm -hmm. uh, the flexibility of Tumblr allows for a very wide spectrum. But the sweet spot that I would emphasize is a single image uh, that tells a, a small story in 5 to 10, 15 seconds. And I, I think you'll see a lot of success with that. 
Makes sense. So you create some kind of custom graphic, custom infographic that uh, that then links to your your content page, or I guess you're also saying that you might link to your email sign up directly. That makes sense. So now let's uh, kind of I guess close this out by talking about email marketing. So what are you doing once you actually get their email uh, address? Like what are you sending them? So I have uh, a basically kind of two different uh, routes that are set up here. There's the traditional automation and autoresponders that are set up. So right now, if you were to sign up and subscribe to our list on beehive.com, you would get emails for the next, I believe, 16 weeks is how long I've got it set up now. Nice. Um, again, maximizing that 80-20 um, email automation sequence is really where you can maximize a lot of your efforts because once it's set up, you can keep building and keep building off of that. Um, so right now we have a 16-week uh, automated email sequence that goes out when you when you sign up, and it's about once per week, not, not overdoing it. And then um, I do traditional broadcast style, where it's what, what most people would just call a blast in email marketing. And that's when anything that comes up that is super topical um, will kind of jump in the news if there's anything uh, really big happening in the world of cannabis, we'll jump in there. And then anytime we upload new products is also when I'll utilize the more of a blast style uh, of email automation, or I guess that wouldn't be automation, of email marketing uh, instead of the automation. So we've kind of got a, a little bit of a hybrid model of automation that kicks in as soon as you sign up. And then over time, depending on topical events, new products, et cetera, then that's when we leverage more of the traditional blast style of email marketing that, that everybody's more used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that, that you have basically 16 weeks of uh, communicating with the customers that are actually having to type up these emails yourself. So this so kind of ties all together email marketing, Tumblr with the social marketing, the content marketing you're doing, all of this on the side. How successful has the business been since since you've started it? It has been excellent. Every of course everybody has a different definition of success, but I am in a great spot. We we're in a steady growth of about 10 10-20% per month and uh that's that's all I could ask for. I'm really satisfied with that. Um, jumping into more of a revenue side of things, the first year I ever started jumping into this, we hit 25k revenue, and now this this year we're projected to double that and possibly more. So we're going to be hitting uh, around 50 to 55k this year. Awesome! Yeah, this is all done uh, part time. How many hours a day are you spending on this? Uh, let's say in the week. Um, it it varies on a spectrum, um, but I pretty much have this eight to ten p.m. blocked out every single day, um, and that's pretty much my beehive focus zone. That I get almost everything done in that eight to ten p.m. Uh, Monday through Friday, and I try to invest as much as I can on the weekends. Um, really doing a, a lot of the sacrificing of. <laughs> social hours and uh, go going out on Fridays and Saturday nights. Um, a lot of the times they're spent right here in front of this keyboard, but it, it's, it's really worth it in, in the long run, I believe. Awesome. So thanks so much, Travis. So beehigh.com, B-E-E-H-I-G-H.com is the website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out for them to follow along with what you're up to, what your, what your company's up to? Yeah, uh, beehive.com, sign up for our mailing list. You'll definitely um, be interested in a lot of the content that we promote and put out. Uh, but on more of a personal level, for anybody that's just wanting to connect for a business relationship, uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's actually been one of my kind of sweet spots for connecting with business to business partners and all kinds of individuals. So feel free to find me on LinkedIn at Travis Lochner, and that's L A. C-H-N-E-R. Awesome. Thanks so much, Travis. Thanks so much, Felix. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.